0: Assalamualaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. Welcome to Daily Sun International with me, Sister Faisal Munshi, on this beautiful Wednesday morning. Alhamdulillah, it's December. Not quite um, holiday time yet for many people, but hopefully everyone's winding down to a certain extent. For some, exams okay, still on, for some, exams are over. Whatever it is, hopefully, inshallah, everyone's finding some sort of solace in the fact that very soon, it will be, you know, time to wind down properly, inshallah. Um, you know, we always uh, always look forward to these times where we can actually just get a breather, get a break, wind down, have a bit of um, of, of of downtime, really. Um, what are we talking about today? Not so much about downtime, actually. We're talking about a very serious topic today on Radio Sound International. And the reason I say that is because we're talking about eating disorders. Now the reason this is really important to talk about is because it's something that's always it's always been around. It's not something that is new to us. Um, but I mean, when we look at the impact that you know our social media has had in many arenas in our lives. Um, it's, of course, also impacting in terms of this aspect of eating disorders. So we're going to be speaking to a recovery specialist coach with regard to eating disorders. And we see a rise in eating disorders within males and um, females and even now with males. Um, you know, they're becoming so common within our society that but still, so little is being done to create this awareness. So we've become, we've become a culture of, and in South Africa it's becoming a culture of eating a lot. Unfortunately... Um, you know it's always it starts in the west and then it seems to just kind of filter down into our lives into what we do um and we really want to be able to break these things down right um, now today which i think our esteemed guest was a coach and has a very heavy she has a very informative blog called titled kirsten honeyball having lived experiences with eating disorders addiction ocd and adhd she's very passionate about cultivating and helping people to recover and when we talk about helping people to recover from an eating disorder, we may think, okay, you know what, maybe that's a bit far-fetched. But really, I think in the conversation today, we'll be able to gauge and understand how serious these eating disorders have become and how much they're impacting on, our, on ourselves, perhaps those within our uh, families, within communities, within society. How should we be looking at people who have eating disorders? Because often it's looked at as, but can't you just stop eating so much? Or can you just, uh you know, stop Stop being anorexic or stop being bulimic or whatever it might be. It's not as simple as that. And so today's conversation will really be around this aspect of eating disorders. How serious is it? What is it? How does it impact people? How does it impact families and society at large? That's what we're talking about today, inshallah. For now, we're going to take a break, get some ads, get my guest on, and continue with the program. Stay tuned. As-salamu wa wa Welcome back to New Horizons with me, Sister Faiza Munshi, on this Wednesday morning. Today, we're talking about eating disorders. My guest on the line is Kristen Hannibal. Good morning and welcome to Radio Islam. Hi, thank you so much for having me on today. It's wonderful to have you on. Just tell us briefly, briefly about yourself, uh, Kristen, and then we'll get on to the
1: program. Awesome. I am a recovery coach for eating disorders. So, um, basically what I do is I help coach people who are struggling with their relationship to food in their body. Uh, it's anything from, you know, anorexia, bulimia, um, exercise addiction, overeating, binge eating, uh, I pretty much Cover all of those under my umbrella and what I do is I help people by taking them through a six month course and I just kind of hold their hand throughout the recovery process based on my personal experience as I have lived experience with an eating disorder and have reached for recovery for that. And I also have a podcast called Curious About Recovery on Spotify, where I interview professionals and I talk about my experience from uh, eating disorder recovery. So that's pretty much what I do. I'm based in Belito, um, but I do a lot of online work, mm-hmm. um, so I have clients all over the world at the moment, which is pretty cool because it enables me to reach more people. So. <laughs> Yeah, I, I would love to know if you have any specific questions. Um, I'd be happy to answer. Oh, absolutely. We're going to have, a. I think we're going to
0: have quite a conversation with regard to it. <laughs> I think it's it, it's something that we've all known about from the time we were, in, we were younger, right? Not giving our age away or anything. But in terms of, you know, when we were at school, we heard about it and they spoke to us about it when we were younger. Um, but as time went on... Uh, a lot of it started getting a lot more serious. And within the South African context, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, we never saw obesity as much as perhaps anorexia and bulimia, et cetera. But I, I, I do see that now um, there seems to be a new epidemic of obesity coming into our midst. So let's talk about the different types of disorders. Um, you know, what's considered an eating disorder? Why does it become an eating disorder? Um, and then also look at within the South African context, what are we truly suffering with?
1: Fantastic. Um, So basically, you know, starting from the schooling, I think we are educated, well, we are misinformed from a young age about how we are supposed to actually cope with food and body. Um, Mm. And basically what you've got to see is that firstly, there's a lack of education on nutrition in South Africa. Not a lot of people know that, uh, you know, you need to follow a healthy diet, you need to do all of that kind of stuff. It's it's so much easier to just fall into unhealthy habits. But anyone can fall into unhealthy habits. What we're looking here at specifically is disordered eating. Now, disordered eating is a maladaptive coping mechanism. So this is where people are so uh, consumed by stress, trauma, um, emotional instability but even financial insecurity can lead someone to want to turn to food or lack thereof as a method of soothing of managing anxiety of stress of even managing relationships and all of that stuff so when when a um, an eating problem comes a disorder, it becomes a disorder. It's often related to a maladaptive psychological uh, issue. So mm-hmm. we are looking at people not just eating too much or too little. We're looking at people obsessing about food, not being able to leave their houses, not being able to function in normal day to day life. And then obviously we've got the people who are experiencing a uh, lesser extremes of disordered eating where they're just Mm -hmm. kind of consumed by eating processes day to day and um, if you look at the greater south african context i think we we don't have a lot of professionals in the field of disordered eating we have gps um, psychiatrists that kind of stuff who have a basic understanding but if you look in the comparison to The kinds of support that you can get in America and Australia, um, because those are two of the leading um, Mm -hmm. countries with eating disorder support, Um, you you actually see that we, we don't have a lot of people who know what they're doing in the professional field, you know, and... Um, sorry, were you going to ask something? No, I was
0: going to say, it's interesting you mentioned the US and Australia because oftentimes, um, you know, through research or just interest in uh, you know, for as women, we're always looking to to shed a few kilos or feel a bit better or um, our bodies are starting to change and we need some information about it. And oftentimes when you look for content, that content is usually coming out of the US. Um, And a lot of the functional health stuff, a lot of the stuff talking about, like you mentioned in the beginning in your intro, is that we don't have a lot of information within the South African context with regard to what is the best way to move forward in terms of our diets and et cetera. And a lot of the content like you mentioned now, a lot of that you know is coming out of the US, not so much from our own shores. Um, and and that makes it difficult for us because when they're talking about, for example, GMA GMO foods, it's it's got to do with them in their context. Um mm-hmm. And it it may relate to us in some ways, but it's not exactly what we're getting on our shores, for example, you know. So it would be good to have, like you mentioned, a lot more experts in these areas because it is a huge problem within our country, for sure.
1: Yeah, and I mean, if you think about it as well, I mean, we, we live in a third world country and we we are kind of dealing with uh, the lower end of quality of foods. Uh, mm. If you go to a, another country that might have uh, a little bit more economic stability or anything like that, you might be able to have easier access to health foods. I mean, the fact that the fact that eating healthy is a privilege. It's a yes. financial privilege in yes, South Africa. Yes, yes, yes. That is a, a, it's, it's large, uh, it's a huge issue. Um, we shouldn't only be able to eat healthy if we have a huge number in our bank account. It should be accessible to to anyone, you know, and um, the the issue there is that people don't actually even know that there's healthy food available um, and they don't know how to cope with their abusive, alcoholic parents in poverty-stricken areas Mm -hmm. and stuff like that. So, you know, what's the easy thing to do? The easy thing is to fall into unhealthy eating patterns um, that often co-occurs with things like alcoholism, um, drug addiction and and all of that stuff and other mental instability and issues. Um, And then you've just got this huge concoction of a whole bunch of people just not being helped. Um, and, And I don't think that... South Africa is really taking this issue as a priority because, I mean, you know, it's not, and I hate to say this, but a lot of the time where the government will focus its attention is where it can earn the most money. And, you know, it's, it's not really a money-earning thing to help yes. people with their food issues. <laughs> yeah.
0: you know, so, I guess yeah. I guess keeping people unhealthy helps uh a lot of people, just not the people themselves, unfortunately, yes. and that's the truth. Um, you bring up a very good point, uh, in terms of the, in the impact, economic impact, I mean, the impact of the economy and um, the fact that those who are poverty-stricken are not necessarily going to be looking for, you know, the healthiest of options because they may be too expensive to buy. You're looking at what will just fill your belly um, mm-hmm. at the least cost. And that is, that is a huge problem within our society and community um, in South Africa. But let's look back now. Let's look at these, these aspects of eating disorders and look at them in particular. Um, we know there's anorexia, bulimia. Can you just, you know, briefly, we don't go into very, too much of detail about them, but what sort of eating disorders are we dealing with within the South African context um, and which ones are the most severe?
1: Okay, so the most severe at the moment, or I guess not the most severe, but the most common one common is, obese, mm-hmm. is obesity, actually. Yes. And that's largely because of our highly palatable, uh, high-carb, high high-sugar-based foods. And, and if you're looking at a broader spectrum, um, leading to diabetes um, and, and all of that, diabetes is really, really high within the rural communities as well because of this diet. So So we'll look at that, but also that's not necessarily disordered eating in the context of the mental health spectrum, that is just a result of poor nutrition, right? So if you're looking at eating disorders specifically in South Africa, you have a lot of anorexia um, and undiagnosed bulimia and actually anorexia because it's very easy to kind of get by in life with no one really noticing that you're struggling, Um, And so I think that the volume or the amount of people that struggle with disordered eating in South Africa is way, way, way higher than we actually are aware of because of the lack of information that people have access to, the lack of support. So you could have someone who is binging and purging 10 times a day and they don't even know they have bulimia because it's not something that... South Africa gives attention to in the medical world, you know so um, a lot of a lot of bulimia um, and if you think of it, I could be very wrong with this these statistics, but the last time I checked, one in ten South Africans has issues with um, severe disordered eating, um, so You know, and one in four people uh, get actually get help um, and actually recover from that one in ten. So it's it's a very low uh, statistic of people people actually getting help. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I hope this answers your question. Um, But like I said, it's and also. A lot of stuff that's praised as well is actually uh, ad- exercise addiction. Um, so you have people you know, going to the gym. You see this a lot in the African um, comp- competition community as well. Um, you have these men coming from rural areas um, who have gotten into heavy lifting, competitions and everything, and it becomes a source of income for their family. But what they're actually doing, dealing with is something called bigorexia which is the uh, thought that you're not big enough and then they're really struggling um with their mental health um and yeah. a- a- and they're competing in these these competitions of as for aesthetic purposes you know um so so i hope this answers your question <laughs> you know because if you look at if we
0: look at um the environment we're living in at this point in time and where we are at. Um, I often bring in social media into a lot of my conversations because mm-hmm. it is a massive thing that impacts how we're going to deal with things going with anything going forward, any sort of difficulty, challenge, disorder, et cetera. But I mean, if you look at young teenagers, and you mentioned that a lot of them go undiagnosed, as long as they look good on their social media post, right? Mm-hmm. They are not going to, and you correct me if I'm wrong, but they are not going to tell anyone about what they are going through um, in private, just so that in public or on those social media posts or on those posts, they can get good comments on there, right? And I think that's important for us to understand that these things are impacting our children in massive
1: ways. Mm, yeah, definitely. And if you think about it, at the root of a lot of disordered eating is a fundamental characteristic of desiring to... Appear better than one is actually doing. So it's a very deceptive illness. It's one that is um, very uh, secretive. Mm. And so already, when you're dealing with an eating disorder without social media, you're dealing with people who struggle to say, um, I'm not doing okay, who struggle to um, show how they're feeling, what they're doing, and they're actually hiding from the world with, without even social media. Then you Put social media on the top of that which is an extension of that that thought pattern or that characteristic of hiding from the real world and pretending to be okay on the outside um, and that's not only affecting people who have eating disorders because there's this ideal or this ideal body that we want to perfect. I mean, if you look at the filters that you can use on social mm-hmm. media at the moment and how we have this unrealistic expectation of what our body should be able to do and look like. Now, this is feeding into youngsters, it's feeding into older people, it's actually infiltrating into all ages and you you have this this like mechanism to... Pretend to be something that you're not, um, yeah. which yeah, it's 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 really not a, a. I mean, I I do credit things like Instagram and all of that that have started highlighting words that might, yes. um, you know, you, I mean, if I Google, I mean, if I write bulimia in the search tab in Instagram, it immediately says, "Are you looking for help?" You know, so yes. I must say that they are trying to do something about it, but in the greater scheme of things, it's it's really not a beneficial thing um, for for anyone struggling with self-esteem, with body issues, with food issues, and and just generally with confidence in themselves.
0: Mm. I mean, it's certainly a big thing in terms of um, you know not feeling good within your body, and then that just translates into every, every aspect of your life. And that's why it's important for us to know and for families to know if someone is struggling. So, I mean, if, if you're looking at someone within the family, what are some of the signs that a loved one can look for if they suspect a, a person has an eating disorder? What are they going to be looking out for?
1: So there's different signs and symbols for different types of disorders, but there's some common ones. So a lot of the time we go to the common signs, which is, you know, not eating, um, the hiding and hoarding food. Um, if you can see a, a little six-year-old who's eating all the candy wrappers and hiding them in, under her cupboard, in, under her bed, like that's a sign that she could be having. An issue with disordered eating, you know, it could be anything from hiding, hoarding, overeating, undereating, obviously weight loss, weight gain, um, but those are the physical things. The psychological things to look out for are things like uh, extreme fear of being imperfect. So perfectionism, um, very high achievers at school often struggle with this, um, excessive exercise. Uh, panic attacks, uh, not being able to cope with emotions very well, um, feeling insecure. we also looking at things like uh, lying, if you're noticing lying happening. Um, and let me think. What else is quite common to look out right. for? Christmas, can yeah. I come in there and just ask you, yeah. so you mentioned
0: that like kids, right? Um, mm-hmm. I think this is an important one to just perhaps um, uh, reiterate or talk about because oftentimes you have kids who are told not to eat too much of sweets. So mm-hmm. they'll maybe take a lot of sweets and hide them. How do you know that you know this is not just Behavior that's being, um, if I may use the word, uh, you know, they, they're not they're not following the rules of their parents, so to speak, or they feel that they just want to eat more sweets than they're they allowed. Um, mm-hmm. What is the difference between that um, behavior and and developing eating disorder or signs that it's an eating disorder? Because I mean, oftentimes kids would, you know, take sweets and hide them away and eat eat as many as they can. Um, mm-hmm. So how do you then, you know, decipher when this is becoming a problem?
1: So I think this is the issue where we as parents have also a, a skewed perception on what is a healthy relationship to food, right? Okay. A lot of the time we, we say you're not allowed to eat that sweet or you can only eat that sweet after you've had dinner or whatever. And we almost frame in frame to our children that there is a forbiddenness about uh, highly palatable food, foods right? Exactly yeah. Food, yeah. So we are already as parents Labeling good and bad foods A way to to help your children Is to develop a healthy relationship Yourself With highly palatable foods With desserts, with treats And, and not to label things as good as and bad To have I, I always say All foods are permissible And all foods have their place mm. So if you're a parent And you're telling your child that they mustn't, um, you know, ever eat sweets or anything like that, then obviously that child is going to want to eat all the sweets. Um, yes, there is a rebellious element of it, but it's, uh, it's, it's a very tricky one to find the balance of, but you need to model a healthy relationship to feed yourself as a parent in order for your child to be able to imitate that healthy relationship. Yes. Yes. Um, I, I hope this uh, answers your question. I'm not sure if I did, though. <laughs> no, sure. So so basically, we need to make
0: sure that our, our kids do what we do. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, if we're saying to them, you're not allowed to eat chocolate after dinner, for example, and you're saying don't even, you know, create such boundaries, for example, but mm-hmm. um, or make it good and bad. But, for example, we would say that and, and be eating a whole slab of chocolate sitting in front of the TV at night, and our kids see that, it becomes also a a point of not understanding what's okay, you know. So it will be, um, you know, as you get into adulthood, you're then allowed to eat whatever you want, whenever you want. So it's very difficult. I think food and relationships to food, for me, I... In particular, have this. You know, it, it's not. It's not an easy thing to to mm. build a positive relationship with food whilst teaching your children the same thing and not making sort of mistakes along the way. So I think when you have children, I think it's that whole idea of let's just try not to make as many mistakes as we can. Hopefully, um, you know, try and get them a good relationship with food. But when you talk about a healthy relationship with food, um, how do we then build in? Uh, the aspects of treats and because I mean we really are living in a culture where the addictive factor of food is massive Mm. and I see it with my own children in terms of the addictive factor in terms of the fast foods because you can make the most incredible food in your home but there's definitely something about the ingredients in food that is sold outside and the marketing and everything else uh, attached to it that's really creating a very skewed perception for our children.
1: Yeah so I think this it's important to to have boundaries as a parent, you know, buying your child takeout every night is not necessarily a big thing to do. But you've also got to understand from a child's perspective on, on an energy level, right, a child's metabolism is incredibly fast. And so they're going to want to grab the thing that can give them the most energy, the quickest, which is why they're going to go for the high sugary foods and all of that stuff. So you as a parent need to understand that your child needs a certain amount of nutrients. And if you are giving that child a a nutrient-dense, balanced uh, diet, they're less likely to want to go for those highly palatable foods um, and when when the time comes. Um, it's important also to in, incorporate a relationship. You, you use that word relationship to food. Mm. So a lot of the time we just, you know, we'll order something, we eat in front of the TV and we go about our ways and then we give our child our, the chocolates and then they, they run off and they go eat it, right? And I think the, the, the first step in developing a healthy relationship to food with, your children is to sit together at the at the table as a family and eat and have conversations and talk about and you know one night maybe have the ice cream first or you know like it's it's about forming a relationship and a Mm -hmm. healthy form of communication and connection in the process of food making food with your children baking Cooking, doing all of those things, remembering that food, the relationship to food first comes from the relationship to the people around us, right? We've used for centuries, you've, we've used foods as, uh, celebratory, for celebratory events. We've used food for, um, for uh, yeah, all sorts if, of yeah, exactly. occasions. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, weddings and
0: functions yeah. and, and, you know, whatever it might be, there's food. And let's be honest if it wasn't for the food, there wouldn't be much fun attached to every event that we have or every, you know, no matter what it is, food is a celebration for, for, for us in many ways. And, you know, it's difficult. It's not, and I, I don't think it's feasible for us to then say, okay, you've got to eat lettuce wraps every day because culture comes into play as well. And that's also important in terms of how we, how we you know, relate to food. But I, and I do hear what you say. As parents, we are allowed to put down those boundaries because it's important as well. You know, having kids, Eat but everything all the time is not the the way to go, so I love what you say about the fact that you know once in a while eat and eat the ice cream first. So it just doesn't make, it. things are not taboo, it's just about, I guess it's about being able to understand moderation and hoping that in the process of your healthy relationship with food, our children then develop, you know, a good moderate relationship with food hopefully going forward. Um, Kristen, we've got a lot more questions for you, but we're going to take an ad break. When we come back, I want to talk about things like your podcast and, you know, some of the stuff you do as a coach um, in okay. order to be able to assist people going forward. For now, a short break for ads. When we come back, more on eating disorders. Stay tuned. As-salamu alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Welcome back to Radio Islam International. With me, Sister Faisa Munshi and my guest, Kristen. Um, Kristen Honeyball, we're talking about, you know, uh, eating disorders, and she is a recovery specialist coach, so really just getting all her insights on this matter. Kristen, welcome back once again. Um, Kristen, we talked about sort of, you know, our relationship to 4 as parents. And how that impacts our children. But let's talk about some of the words we may use with our children. You know, there may be, um, especially with the youth, they take things very, very much to heart. Uh, teenagers, preteens, etc. How do our comments as family members, as parents, as siblings impact? You know, the youth impact those who are still trying to find their way in the world.
1: Sure, this is a really big one. I mean, if you think about the cliched saying that children are sponges, you know, they're going to absorb everything that they learn. And I think it's the age of seven that when beliefs are formed neurologically in the brain before the age of seven, those beliefs become hardwired and are very, very difficult to undo in adulthood or in later teenagers. So if you're speaking words um, that aren't kind or if you're influencing them with your own thoughts or your own diet, Culture or anything like that, um, up, up to the age of seven, that there's actually those beliefs actually become a part of that person's belief system. So, let's say you're a, a mother and you say to your six-year-old daughter, oh, "I don't want to wear that dress because I look fat," you know, she's going to automatically learn to speak about herself that way. Mm-hmm. Um, so, we've got to realize that our children are very, very influenced by what we say about ourselves. Now, we can joke uh, this is what I see with a lot of parents. They joke about diet culture they yeah. they joke about um, how they look they they even discriminate i mean if you think about it, um, fat phobia is the only the only um, accept, socially acceptable form of discrimination that is still left you know, and people don 't see that. So we've got to realize that even when we're joking around our children about what a body should look like, what we should eat, all of that kind of stuff, our children will absorb it and they'll take it to be true. So the better... Relationship we can have. That's why I always encourage parents not to comment on things like weight and shape, and you know, rather connect with your child's personality. Uh, ask them what their strengths are. See how their day was from school. You know, if they if there are sports, um, if there is a child that does sports, congratulate them on their effort rather than them winning or them getting it right or perfect. You know, so um, I think it's very very important to watch what you say as a parent especially watch what you say about yourself because Mm -hmm. that's how your child will learn to speak about themselves. Um, Krishnamie, is it, and
0: you can correct me, but is it then better to look at because there is there is a sort of this boundary we have to set uh, set with our children in terms of what they can eat on a day because I mean if you gave a child a choice they would take they would have takeaway and chocolate and sweet obviously every single day so in terms of looking at food um, is it more important then to start encouraging our children to look at food in terms of health in terms of how the brain works or in terms of those and um, in terms of the energy it gives you or uh, or the energy it saps from you if you eat junk food, et cetera. Is that a way to go? Because you're going to have to find a way to navigate um, giving them healthy food. So is that maybe a
1: better way to do it? A hundred percent. I mean, I used to be an au pair for very young children, and but I love the way that the mother spoke about food. She wouldn't say, oh, that's a bad food or mm-hmm. that's a good food. She would always say, this food's gonna make you more. It's gonna make you smarter. You know, this food's uh, gonna yes. feed <laughs> your brain. You know, uh-huh. this food's gonna make your your uh, tummy feel good. You know, like it, it was always about what what the food was, how the food was benefiting the the child. So Brilliant. Yeah. It, it, it should never ever be about this is a bad food. It, it should always be about well this food, like let's say the healthier option or something, can give you these benefits, you know, and don't you want to be big and strong and fast and this, and, you, you know what I mean, so it's definitely a way that we can, In education is, is a really, really great way of helping kids understand their bodies, um, and also just open communication about, you know, what is that child feeling, like how if the child has a whole bunch of Easter eggs all in one go and then the child's got a headache, it's like you know, how did that make you feel? You know, talk more about how the child is feeling than about labeling good and bad foods.
0: Yeah, there's, there's a a brain specialist that often, you know, pick up the, the social media posts, and he often says, you know, you love this food, but does this food love you back? <laughs> 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 yeah, so he often says, does this food love you back? Now, moving on, um, you know, you um, you mentioned, uh, you, you used to have, you have a very good, Blog post that has a lot of wealth of information. I want to look at you know how you get to your uh, to, to everyone around you. You've decided to actually move from just doing the blog post to doing a a podcast. What was the, why was that move, um, and why do you think that's an important move for you in terms of the education you're sending out?
1: Oh, awesome. Okay, so firstly, um, I I also happen to be an audio engineer, so <laughs> I okay. was very very um, I was very blessed to have that skill to be able to make a podcast on my own Um, but for me it's more of a calling right I feel that we don't speak enough about disordered eating because it's such a touchy subject we don't get honest we always frame eating disorder recovery in pink clouds and and you know everyone's like A lot of professionals even talk about all the good stuff about disordered eating recovery. And I am the type of person who says my entire life I was made to believe that my voice didn't matter. And so I wanted to use this platform, use my voice as a tool to be able to help other people, to be able to share awareness, to be able to share the the ugly truth about disordered eating and recovery and the stumbling blocks and the things that people don't get right. Um, Also, the reason why I called it Curious About Recovery is because it's not focused on any one specific um, methodology. I've spoken from about everything from plant medicine to psychiatric help to, you know. So I'm mm. really, really trying to explore more and more and more about the process of recovery from disordered eating so that people really can find what works for them. Because there's no one size fits all from disordered eating recovery. So... I'm super, super passionate about using my voice as a tool to help people who feel that they don't have a voice. Um, and that's why I decided to do the podcast. I, I mm-hmm. tried the whole video thing, but I felt that it was unnatural for me. Um, and yes, I uh, get that 100%. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think for, some, for, some, for some, I think it's
0: just being able to get your voice out there without having to worry about you know, everything else, you know, the the... the everything in terms of the nonverbal cues and how you use your hands and what happens as you talk. (laughs) So I think for some of us, you're right. Um, Some some of us, we need just the voice. But, you know, in saying that you also share a lot of uh, detail in terms of You know trauma and what trauma does for eating disorders Mm so you know it's important for us to be able to look at these eating disorders from so many different perspectives you know we spoke about the relationship we build with food and uh, with the relationship we build for our children then in terms of how we feel but there's also so many aspects And you mentioned them in your blog as well can we touch on this aspect of trauma and that relationship
1: with eating disorders and is that important and how does it feed in yes it's very important it's highly unlikely to have a person who has disordered eating that hasn't experienced some kind of trauma. And this could be chronic trauma. It could be acute trauma. It could be what we call big T's and little T's. So the little T's would be, um, you know, exposure to adverse, Circumstances over an extended period of time, or we could have the big Ts like a divorce of the parents or a loss of a loved one or moving of a house or school or something like that. Um, and everyone's trauma is self-defined. And the thing is that a lot of the time, uh, you know, genetically we are, pre-dis- we are predisposed. <laughs> mm-hmm. Sorry, I couldn't find that word. To... Um, to eating disorders genetically and what can happen is that a trauma can actually then spark that's so, uh, much like schizophrenia, uh, psychosis and, and that kind of thing so um, it's very important to recognize that uh, eating disorders are often trauma-based. They're often trauma responses because the lack of eating or the going into comfort eating or the exercise addiction or anything like that is always used as a coping mechanism. And why do we need to cope? Is because we believe that we can't deal with what we are facing. And the greater that belief is... Um, the more likely we are to resort to eating disorders as a coping mechanism. Mm. So it's very important that if you have a therapist or a coach or someone that's helping you, that they do come from a trauma-informed approach, even if you haven't specified that you struggle with trauma, um, to to recognize that we need to address eating disorders from a trauma-informed dispro- approach as well. Um, and, and that there, a lot of the time trauma therapy can actually really help with disordered eating therapy as well and and often is included. Sometimes the the modalities overlap uh, each other So, um, and and a lot of the time you find a lot of the underlying causes, root beliefs, all of that stuff are, are similar to a person who has experienced a traumatic event or a series of traumatic events. Mm-hmm. A lot of the time, you'll uh, sorry. Okay, yeah, you can on, continue, Yeah. Yeah. Um, a lot of the time, you'll find people with anorexia have mm-hmm. a sexual trauma that has happened. Um, actually, people with any dis- disorder. A lot of the time, you've got um, molestation when when you're a child, or a, a rape, or some kind of sexual trauma that has happened, and and this is because at that event. One has be, has formed a very very negative relationship with their body because it's been uh, violated, you know. So uh, a lot of the time, people will go into disordered eating after sexual trauma as well. There's such a deep connection to trauma and disordered
0: eating. Yet, um, I'm sure over the years, or if you deal with your your clients, etc., people may say to you that people within their family have said to them, "You know what? It's in your mind. Um, you know, just stop." overeating or, or deal with it in whatever way you can because it's not a big deal or it's mind over matter, etc. If family members or friends of, of your your client were to say to you, I think this is just basically mind over matter and they must pull themselves together and sort themselves out, it's not a big deal. What would you say to them?
1: Hmm. That's a, such a, a outdated response to disordered eating. You've got to look. There's a lot of layers. Number one, an anorexic person or a person... Actually, not even an anorexic person. A person who is nutritionally um, has a nutritional deficit, and a, a person who is obese can have nutritional deficiency. But as soon as you have nutritional deficiency, your brain actually doesn't do its job properly. Now, if you think about the lungs, the lungs breathe. So without air, we can't breathe. The same as the brain. The brain needs certain chemical processes that are given to you through your nutrients in order to do its functioning, which is rational thought, which is the ability to decide, which is the ability to cope, all of these things. So if your brain doesn't have the right nutrients, it's not going to be doing its job. So to try and tell someone to do something rational, such as just eat or just you know mind Mm -hmm. over matter, Mm -hmm. their Mm -hmm. mind isn't working properly. It's malfunctioning. So it's got to be, I always say that recovery is threefold. You've got to look at nutritional rehabilitation. So you need to get the brain into a place where it's actually thinking, adequately again you then got to do uh, neural re- rewiring which is where we actually look at the thought patterns the beliefs the coping mechanisms all of that and then you've got, a, got the third one which i love to call soul re-nourishing so you've got to look at the the person as a whole who are they what makes them happy what brings them joy um, what's their purpose in life and, and and all of those things and so um it goes a lot deeper than just mind of a matter, you're looking at your biological um, factors, you're looking at your factors such as your biological drivers. Now, for instance, if a person has anorexia or a person is restricting their food throughout the day, you have a biological driver in your brain that will then in that will then kick in. And tell you to overeat. Uh, so it's it's not even a matter of the person choosing to overeat. It's literally a survival mechanism kicking in. Mm. You know. So there's so many factors. There's physiological factors. Um, you have certain hormones that can that can make you feel fuller than you are. That can make you feel more hungry than you are. Um, you need to be looking at the hormone balances in the person. You need to be looking at their psychiatric history. Um, and then you also need to look at the fact that it is a form of addiction, which is, you know, they've actually learned how to cope with a certain thought pattern, emotion, relationship, et cetera, by using this behavior. And that is their brain's most automatic response to anything that feels unmanageable. Mm. You know, so when people say, you know, just mind over matter, just eat properly, whatever, it's so much more complex than that, and that's why I think that there's not a lot of professionals who work in this field because it is mm. very hard to help a person. It is very, very, very hard, um, because of all the biological, psycho, psychological, etc. things working against them when they are in that position.
0: I guess yeah. I mean, if you look at um, addiction to drugs or alcohol, etc., if you were to cut that, out, you've got to cut that out of your life. Um, you'd still survive. I mean, in fact, you'd you'd thrive because you're taking away the toxic substance. You cannot remove food from your life completely. You, know, you, you would not survive. And I think that's where the complication comes in is because the food still needs to be there. The nourishment needs to be there without actually having the addictive nature towards that or the addictive you know, um, uh, thoughts about it, etc. And you mentioned the word addiction quite a lot, and I think it's important for us to then understand that we're using the word addiction, and often for an addiction, you get assistance. you you have mm-hmm. to get help from someone to be able to get through this. You can't do it by yourself. And so we have to look, take away that simplistic view of eating disorders and look at it as an addiction, either to food or not wanting to eat food, whatever, whichever way that, it, that the eating disorder is going, and understand that it needs help uh, through the mm-hmm. process. Uh, we've got just a few minutes left, but I wanted to ask you quickly, uh, Kristen, you share your personal story on your blog. Why did you do that? Why did you think that was important?
1: Because if I don't share my story, then no one's ever going to hear stories. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. um, a, a lot of people just, they go into recovery and they never share it. And so people don't know that it exists. People don't know that you can recover. People, it, it, I shared it because I had to share it. <laughs> That's the simple yes. answer. <laughs> yes. And if anyone were to come to an eating
0: um, disorder coach as yourself, you know, what would they expect? And what is your role in their recovery?
1: Okay, so my role as a coach, I often help people who are coming out of uh, like primary care, so hospitalization, that kind of thing. Um, I help people who have acknowledged that they have an eating disorder and that they want to do something about it. Um, So basically how I step in is I have a six month program um, that I work with and will meet on a consultation once a week where we have an hour where we chat. Um, I then have WhatsApp availability where a person can WhatsApp me throughout the day and say, you know, this is what I'm struggling with. How do I cope with this? XYZ. Um, they also have a course book, which is a, a six-chapter ebook that I designed based on my personal and professional history with eating disorder. Um, and I have a bi-weekly group coaching session that they also then would be helped with. Um, and so, so basically, I, I can help a person anything from one-on-one coaching – um, which is different to therapy because I'm very solution-oriented. So a person will come to me and say, this is what I'm struggling with, and I'll say, okay, cool, these are the tools that we can use. Let's be accountable for them. Let me help you if you can't do those tools. Um, and I collaborate with other medical professionals, whether it's a dietitian, whether it's a psychiatrist. We'll collaborate as a team to help this person through whatever they're going through. Um, and then I also have um, the ability to do things like a live-in. I do short-term live-ins with a person who's really struggling mm-hmm. to to have food. I'll do things like go to... Um, have meals I'll have meals with a client I'll help them process a meal I'll go grocery shopping I'll do, I'll do anything that the person needs to help them in their relationship to food that's so that's the, the role that I play it's that's it's way wonderful. more hands-on than than any other position as a, <laughs> a professional that's wonderful it's really great to hear
0: that that's out there um, if anyone wants to follow you on social media etc what, what should they do what's your
1: handle so awesome. my handle is at Kirsten Honeyball. So that's spelled K-I-R-S-T-E-N-H-U-N-N-E-Y-B-A-L-L at Kirsten Honeyball. That's on Instagram. My website is www.kirstenhoneyball.ca. Um, you can find me as Kirsten Honeyball Eating Disorder Recovery Coach on Facebook and Curious About Recovery Diving Into Eating Disorders on Spotify. Wonderful. It's been
0: such a pleasure speaking to you. I'm sure this has been very helpful to our listeners. And I hope you have a wonderful, you know, December and going into the, hopefully, the holidays with some ease and rest going forward. Thank you so much. It's
1: been wonderful chatting to you.
0: Thanks. Have a wonderful day, Father. You too. Bye. Bye-bye. That was Kirsten Hannibal. We were talking about eating disorders. That brings us to the end of today's program. Alhamdulillah. Until next time, for me, Sister Parazamunsheth, wassalamu alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.